The Elf in the Delph, written by Ben Tallon, edited by David Woods-Hale, narrated by Ben Tallon. Available now in limited edition print zine form at bentallonwriter.com forward slash shop. Kirk saw it first. It was 7.45am on December 2nd when Miranda stopped to pick up a takeaway coffee on the way to her mother's. Her son recognised the striped tights and red tunic immediately, even from distance. Miranda had just opened WhatsApp in the queue when the five-year-old tugged her jeans and yelled, Mummy! Look! Look! Elf! Her eyes darted across the cafe windows, certain she'd see some novelty elf decoration beaming its big-eyed mischief their way. Only fairy lights danced behind the glass, so she followed her son's line of sight. Squinting into the murky water of the local delf, she focused on a blurred chunk of red, gently swaying back and forth. She put on her glasses. Just a minute, let me get these on. Hang on, where... Oh. It was face down, bobbing around among the dead leaves and beer cans. The same toy elf that had been moving to a different place, in the house, every night after Kirk had gone to bed, as ordained in the viral Christmas tradition. It was a sad sight, this conduit of glee, adrift and faceless, a symbolic murder victim. Can we go see if he's okay? The boy asked, confused by the presence of his pointy-eared friend, outside, over a mile from home. When they'd last seen Elf, he'd been making a snow angel and a dusting of plain flour on the kitchen worktop. After two minutes of arguing and half-tantrums over Miranda's refusal to go rescue Elf, Kirk huffed and picked a peeling piece of wood on the cafe's outdoor bench while Miranda drank her latte. Her decision was for Kirk's benefit, and she tried to explain that the Delph Elf was a different one to theirs, a pretend version. But it was too late. The bad seed had been planted. At 9.10am, interior design husband and wife unit Caleb and Roxy lumbered after Haley. They clambered down the big stone steps towards the water, almost turning ankles and falling as their six-year-old daughter nimbly crouched and hopped from each one as quickly as she could. At the edge of the bank, the girl froze in a profound silence and brought a finger to her mouth. When they caught up with the six-year-old, Roxy dropped to one knee and wrapped her arms around her daughter, concerned about the psychological implications of such an ambush on a young mind. Caleb sighed and wondered how the ludicrously popular character had come to be here, floating in the tainted waterway. He tugged at the back of Roxy's coat and whispered in her ear that she should not tell Haley this elf was not hers. Roxy's face scrunched in horror at the suggestion. If you remove the concept of consequences, he said, what's to stop her from one day ending up like that? The inquests didn't take long to begin. Older children were robustly interrogated by parents promising severe sanctions in the event of proven guilt. Mums and dads who were known complainants about the daily chore of repositioning the elf were accused wantonly of carrying out a ritual sacrifice. In a few short hours, the village bristled, a hive of suspicion, and still, the body of the toy swayed to and fro in the dredge. Nobody dared be seen near it. At one stage, three ducks surrounded the toy, and poked at him with their beaks, which caused several young eyewitnesses to cry. Nobody seriously considered retribution on the animals, but it crossed several minds. One particularly irate grandmother told the cafe staff that if they had witnessed any suspicious-looking lurkers at opening time this morning, they needed to talk now. Since 2005, when the shellfish squatter exploded into popular culture via Carol Abersold's picture book, 
This 3D creation of the story's elven protagonists has become a crucial pillar of support for desperate parents in December. Children, mutating into snarling, bug-eyed agents of consumerism, had to at least pause to think about what the curly-toed supergrass on the bookshelf might report back to Santa Claus when they were asleep at night. But everything changed that morning when one washed up in the Delph. The dead toy was symbolic, a far more complex concept than it first appeared. Many parents assured their offspring that it was fine, that this was not their elf. Theirs, they emphasised, was the only one that mattered. Some saw it as a valuable life lesson in bereavement. One hungover dad told his son, Parker, that this is what happens when Santa is crossed. As he saw it, the child holding tight to his hand, witnessing the unimaginable, would never put a foot wrong if he glimpsed Santa's Tony Soprano side. Most villages shed some part of their innocence on a meta level. It left them feeling defiled, with none of the maturity to process such feelings, as if dirt had been tightly packed under the fingernails of their souls. By 11.30am, just hours after the grim discovery, finally convinced that this was not a hoax, Constable Owen Taylor struggled into his car and drove down to Willie Delph. Crowds of families had gathered in unusually large numbers, undeterred by the downpour which played a drum roll on his windscreen. The pleasant village bridge cafe and green usually saw a moderate passing traffic, small families, groups of friends and dog walkers, but in his four years on the job, this was unheard of. Taylor had understood the callers correctly. A toy elf had been discovered in the water. This part seemed simple and inconsequential. It was the outrage surrounding the sighting that stunned him. Surely old toys were commonplace in the UK's polluted canals, streams and rivers. Owen was a single 31-year-old without family or partner. He recalled vaguely hearing about the Elf on the Shelf craze, but had to ask a few of the calmer people who had gathered by the edge of the Delph for the clarifying details, in a vain effort to make sense of the charged atmosphere. Even when he had a handle on the concept behind the toy, he remained of the opinion that the hysteria was severely bloated. Yet these people spread spittle onto their chins when they spoke. Their knuckles were white, the whites of their eyes veiny and red. He almost called for backup when three verbally abusive mothers closed in around him and reminded him how easy it was to slip and fall off a bridge if the perpetrator was not identified and brought to justice. Finally, at a loss, he watched with a swelling crowd as several council workers removed the body. What more did they want from him? A crime scene? Forensics? Many of the parents covered their children's eyes. Others left the scene before their beloved had the chance to see the colourless face pulled from his watery grave. What came next represented the busiest three weeks the local police had ever known as Whaley simmered and threatened to roar up over the sides of the pan. Any children below a certain age who had not seen the body were told about him in macabre detail by those enlivened by the drama. Mischievous older kids painted shocking pictures of how the elf had perished in grotesque fashion with twisted limbs at the hands of demons causing nightmares and great emotional distress. Worst of all, the power of every single elf was broken. The ultimate snitch had gotten his stitches and anarchy reigned in every family home. Kids ran unchecked through the living rooms and hallways, defying orders, pissing wide of the potty on purpose and opening presents in the loft early without fear of reprisal. Except for Parker, of course, who curled into the fetal position and sucked his thumb in terror every time his dad rang a small cluster of bells he kept hidden in his pocket, reminding him that Santa was always watching. Every slice of child naughtiness was served with a greedy portion of parental backlash. When order in the home is challenged, 
bad things happen, but the punishment spread far beyond the kids. Several reports of vigilante groups in Wailing were not exaggerated. Enraged, vengeance-hungry middle-aged mothers, with a sprinkling of bored fathers and young mums eager to inject purpose into their lives, rose up and united in the hunt for the scumbag who had drowned Christmas. Hostile, chanting packs marched through the streets and squares. Local non-sex offenders were chased down wantonly and terrorised in broad daylight. Their windows bricked through, addresses banded around in public Facebook groups. Previously tolerated refugees noticed more discrimination in their daily lives than usual. The homeless were colder than they had ever been before. They had donations in short supply, and when the local parish refused to condemn unfounded finger-pointing in the gay community, a rash of homophobic hate crimes were carried out under the thin veil of the Lord's work. By the time the curtains fell on the school nativity plays for the Christmas holidays, what started as just another piece of litter had degenerated into a pitchfork-embellished witch hunt. It was out of control. The likely simple explanation is unwanted as a block of coal in the foot of a stocking. Occasional police intervention did little to stem the tide of lawlessness. There were insiders on the force who turned blind eyes and leaked private records, grateful for the assistance of the embittered public in a matter they knew, but would never say, was a waste of police time. The doll's appearance had, against all odds, emboldened law-abiding people to behave like animals on their misguided prejudices, Frustrated people who wanted to see the world burn because life had not turned out the way they hoped it would. The local media amplified their guttural snarls and published a cover story about a teacher who had been sneakily recorded accusing parents of laziness by calling in elven disciplinary reinforcements from the North Pole. She was run out of town in a matter of hours when twenty or so shadowy figures laid siege to her home, staring through her windows, skulking menacingly in her garden. A giant inflatable snowman was slashed. When she called the police, she was put on hold for 20 minutes and Constable Taylor never learned of her distress signal. Taylor was desperate to draw a line under the ugly saga. He was a straight, noble officer, determined to uphold civility in the village. He felt increasingly under scrutiny, under pressure to identify a culprit. He wondered what bullshit charge they would serve up to the guilty party. Littering with intent? He attended the low-budget local Santa Parade on 18th of December, where Stan Rothery, a heavyweight drinker, trundled through town on top of a belly-disguised Vauxhall Zafira, with his sister's ski stuck on top. Two gardens and a wicker deer were dragged along behind on a piece of rope, with tomatoes pushed onto their snouts. Everyone watched from their homes as coloured drifts of rain swirled around in the glow of the cheap flashing lights hanging from the vehicle. Stan's stuck-on white beard hung limp, and he didn't even bother to wave at the gawping children. Taylor felt tension, not cheer in the air as he watched over proceedings. Maybe it was in his head, but he thought he saw several human shapes behind curtains as he patrolled and passing chats with locals he'd known for years were awkward and abrupt. It was the last time he was seen in public. Back in the station, he worked a night shift on 19th December, poring over four days' worth of security footage, passing traffic, groups of teenagers, coffee drinkers and occasional stumbling drug punter. Back in the station, he worked a night shift on the 19th of December, poring over four days' worth of security footage, passing traffic, groups of teenagers, coffee drinkers, and the occasional stumbling drunk punter. It eventually paid off. At one end of the crucial mile of canal between the murder site and a cavalry pub, a father and daughter stopped and crouched down on the canal path in the day's last light, observing a small object in the water. 
The body language of the girl suggested she was upset. The father's gentle remonstrating was clearly a littlest and futile attempt to comfort her. Taylor saw nothing to suggest anything more sinister than an accidentally dropped toy. At the other end, Granny, after dark footage, depicted a small, barely visible object slowly drifting out of the mouth of the tunnel under the bridge into the Delph to its final resting place. By no means was any of this evidence conclusive, but it left Taylor with a moral dilemma. To serve up these findings to the Bayon locality would be tantamount to hoisting up the innocent father from the footage and nailing him to the cross with his own hands. But to destroy the files and declare the line of inquiry a dead end... But to destroy the files. But to destroy the files and declare the line of inquiry a dead end would be to pervert the course of justice, a huge risk in his own career to protect a man he had never met. But to destroy the files and declare the line of inquiry a dead end would be to pervert the course of justice, a huge risk to his own career to protect a man he had never met. That I had come to this at all spoke volumes about the state of today's society. Taylor felt jaded and disillusioned with the value of police in modern times. He filed some paperwork, replied to a few text messages, made a tea which he did not drink, then eventually settled on informing the pub and the cafe that the footage would be held indefinitely to help with the inquiry. He clicked on the files and started to drag them towards the trash can. Before he could complete the command, a momentary glint of red above the station doors drew his attention away from the screen. He shuffled over and stared up. Had he imagined it? The lights flashed again. Half a second, maybe less. His mouth hung open in disbelief. The same elf that turned the village upside down stared back at him, its head at an unnatural angle, blinking red lights in its eyes. The word hello left his brain, but never made it out of his mouth. He knew the watchers were many his limbs petrified with fear. It was then that the silhouettes, painted ominously against the crackling night sky outside, began to tap menacingly on the window. The Elf in the Delph, written and narrated by Ben Tallon, edited by David Woods Hale. Limited edition print zine versions of the story are available now at bentallonwriter.com forward slash shop.